1: start discussing Jay Garfield's book, Losing Ourselves. I first became aware of his work uh, because he edited a volume called Wilfred Sellers in Buddhist philosophy uh, that I was using
0: to prepare for the Barry uh, retreat uh, next month. And that volume is uh, rather technical and
1: academic. Uh, so it was very nice to see him put out this book, which is uh, I hope much more accessible uh, as it's intended to, uh, for a much broader
0: audience. I thought today we would begin discussing
1: parts of chapter two rather than chapter one, because the the book opens with some material that we've been discussing in the past, which I think I'll just review now
0: uh, in this talk. And that has to do with The whole relationship uh, between uh, our talk of the self and a long history of identifying the self uh, with something like the soul in a religious context, whether uh, East or West. And part of what uh, Garfield is going to
1: do is try to first pry away our talk of self from some of those religious origins and connotations But also at the same time to show how the way we continue to use the word carries with it assumptions uh, that we're grounded in those uh, religious concerns,
0: even when we think we're no longer involved with them. Now, the idea of the soul arises uh, to address at
1: least three uh, particular concerns.
0: The first is the distinction between living and non-living matter. Question naturally arises in all uh, traditions
1: about what is the nature of life? How is it that seemingly dead
0: matter can become alive? And a very common
1: Answer to that uh, question was that life was a a separate substance
0: that could be infused into matter. It's often identified with breath. The idea that some vitalizing non-material
1: substance had to be added to matter so that matter could become alive. And that when we die, what happens is that that animating substance, the soul or the breath, leaves the body, and the body is then returned
0: to inanimate matter. What was very hard to conceive was that matter itself could be animated simply through the complexity of its arrangement. Aristotle had a basic uh, understanding of that possibility And he described the
1: soul of uh, in one in one set of contexts as the functional arrangement of things so that they would become what they are. And he used the example that I think we've talked about many times of a candle, uh, where if you have wax and a string they can be put together in a way that makes a candle or they can just be a heap of wax and a string uh, lying around and if they're separated or not put together in a certain way, they can't function. And he said that the soul of the candle is the arrangement of them in such a way is that they, you can light them and that it stays lit. And so that was really the the seed of what was going to become a modern explanation, uh, an alternative to vitalism, the idea that some additional substance had to be added. Uh, But unfortunately, Aristotle lived in a culture in which the immortality of the soul was taken for granted. Uh, It was so much part of the cultural background that he could did not think he could ignore that as a reality. And so that uh, by various uh, maneuvers, he tried to uh, still talk about an immortal soul. I'll have to go back and review what steps he took to go from the candle to the immortal soul. But I think it was a, uh, an unfortunate wrong turn. In any case, that's, um, that's, uh, the soul in that context is the answer to one, the first question, which is, how can matter become alive?
0: And it connects to the uh, second uh, question, which has to do with this possibility of immortality. Because once you see uh,
1: the soul as a non-material substance that's separable from uh, the body, then there's the possibility raised that it could continue to live on without the body.
0: And this became... uh, you know, a a basic part of uh, religious traditions all all over the world. And it's not hard to see that it has a great deal
1: of appeal since we all fear death and wish there was an alternative to it. And to, to separate the soul from the body is a way to we both acknowledge the inevitability of the death of the body, but hold on to the idea
0: that there's something that doesn't die. And so that even in the midst of uh, Buddhist traditions
1: that seem to be grounded in a fundamental acceptance of impermanence, there's still the uh, all this cultural pressure to imagine something continues, that
0: there's something like reincarnation, rebirth. And this leads to the third uh, issue
1: that the soul is... Uh, meant uh, to address and that has to do uh, with the notion of uh,
0: uh, the uh, justice or goodness of the world because if we want to believe
1: either in a good and just God or a, a world that is Uh, rational and somehow fair, we have to account for the
0: obvious unfairness and injustice and cruelty of this life. And the soul provides a possible answer.
1: The justice is not to be found in this life but in the next life, or the next series of lives. So that either in a Western tradition,
0: the soul is judged and goes accordingly to heaven or hell, or
1: in a Hindu or some Buddhist traditions, the soul undergoes successive rebirths, to work out the karma of uh, this life in successive lives. All this is enables religious traditions to hold on to a sense of the ultimate justice of the world, or uh, in the case of Western uh, traditions, uh, to address the problem of theodicy, the problem of evil. Uh, in a world supposedly created by a a just God. And this problem of justice adds one more wrinkle uh, to the thinking about the soul, which has to
0: do with the notion of freedom and moral responsibility. If we think about an afterlife in which people are
1: punished or rewarded for the uh, for their deeds in this life, if that system is going to be just, then those people have to be morally responsible for those actions. and if their actions are simply Totally causally determined. If what I do is simply the, uh, the the product of my genetics, or how I was raised, or what happened to me, or how I was influenced, then it looks like I'm simply the determined product of all these forces. And how can a just God reward or punish me for things that really are not uh, under my control at all. And this problem of moral responsibility uh, led people to uh, add this other dimension to the notion of the soul, that it's not only immaterial, but essentially free. Uh, causality was uh, considered an attribute of the material world the material universe was thought of as this billiard billiard ball universe one thing bumps into another and uh, you know force uh, acts on matter and matter reacts and everything can be described in a totally deterministic fashion but this uh, again poses big problems in a religious context if you want to think about moral responsibility so having the soul be immaterial in many traditions means that it's free from cause and effect This became uh, the the centerpiece of uh, Kant's notion of the soul being uh, uh, noumenon rather than phenomenon. That it operates on a transcendent level that is characterized by freedom. That we share with God in rationality and with freedom so that we have moral knowledge and moral responsibility for our actions, even though we're living in what seems to be this uh, deterministic uh, moral universe. And I, really, I recently came across a, uh,
0: a quote from Kant in which he says, the The necessity
1: of there of there to be punishment is the main thing that makes us believe in immortality Very weird notion in some sense, but he says he you have to have a notion of justice of reward and punishment in another life in order to hold on. To an idea of a, a good and just God. And the only way to do that
0: is to have an, an immortal soul that is nonetheless immaterial
1: and not subject to cause and effect and somehow uh, possessing
0: absolute freedom. Now, in some ways, it looks like
1: these uh, the problems that the idea of the soul was meant to address are no longer uh, particularly viable questions or problems for uh, contemporary people. We don't worry so much about how is it that Uh, matter can become alive. We're pretty confident that this is a physical system that obeys all the laws that we know of, you know, physics and chemistry and biology. And while it's very complex, we don't think we need to breathe uh, a separate substance into matter to make it alive. It's a non-issue. One way or another, large portions of the population have managed to live without the idea of immortality. And one way or or another, reconcile themselves to the idea that the only justice there is in this life is in this life, not in the next life. There are certainly many people who want to uh, continue to... uh, Hope or believe in uh, uh, immortality and in rewards and punishment in the next life, but it's also true that one way or another we've sort of demonstrated how life can go on without those ideas um, and it looks like uh, we should be able to do with the idea without the idea of the soul if we're able to separate ourselves uh, from those uh, old religious questions. Garfield, uh, though, wants to make the case that a lot of the ideas uh, from uh, soul thinking can continue to permeate, to percolate through contemporary ideas of the self. Or have gotten, we could say, embedded in the language of the self.
0: And uh, a couple of the uh, thought experience he, uh, experiments he offers are sort of
1: examples about how uh, we still can imagine uh, the separation of a inner immaterial I from the body. And uh, his examples are, uh, can you imagine uh, being being yourself, but having the body of a great athlete, being in the body of Serena Williams, but still being yourself. See, there's a way in which we
0: think we can imagine that. Uh, I'll be in her body, but I'll still be me. Or then he says, can you imagine having Einstein's brain?
1: You're still being you, but you'll have his super IQ. You'll be able to think and do physics and math, just like Einstein. But you'll still be yourself, but with all his capabilities. And the fact that we can seemingly think like that, uh, or have those uh, imaginary fantasies, he thinks is a kind of holdover from... Uh, talk that separates the soul from the body, that that thinks they're distinct and can be independent of another. Whereas philosophically, we would say those thought experiments aren't things that are difficult, they're things that are nonsense. That because I am uh, an embodied uh, organism, Uh, defined by my uh, history and body and everything that goes along with it, I am not transplantable into something else and still be myself. Uh, But it is a bit of nonsense that comes out, you know, in in science fiction all the time. And you you read stories about uh, the idea that your personality or your ego is a program in your brain and maybe if your your mind equals your brain and your brain equals a computer and your your uh, self equals the program in the computer maybe we can upload that into a real computer and then maybe we can download it back into a different body and maybe that way I'll be immortal right Again, people write about that sometimes as if it was a really difficult technical problem that maybe someday we'll be able to solve. But it's actually just a bit of nonsense.
0: It's it's not a difficulty, it's nonsense. I was trying to think of a kind of
1: analogy to illustrate that and the best I could come up with was uh, think about shadows. Uh, the way a shadow is made is an object uh, is placed in front of a light source and behind the object, the, uh, uh, away from the light source, a shadow will appear on the ground. What if we said, I think I want to bottle the shadow." I w- the, I, the shadow is clearly there. It's a thing. It's something. So let's see if I can pick that up, extract it, figure out how to have the shadow without the object and without the light source. Right? Now, is that a, a difficult problem? No, it's nonsense. Because what a shadow is, is the combination of the, the interaction of the object and the light source and a surface behind them. You can't take the lift of the shadow out from that context. It has no reality except as part of that. And so, part of what we're going to be looking at through uh, lots of different kinds of examples in the book is in the way that certain kinds of self-language act as if uh, the self is this shadow, uh, something that can be separated out and extracted from uh, its
0: material context. Now, there's a whole other
1: uh, dimension to this that I don't want to go into too much, but... I'll mention just uh, so you have it in mind as you read going forward, and that is that we use the word "self" in a lot of different ways, uh, and some of the ways we use it uh, refer to being the possessor of my experience or the or or having agency, where we'll say, you know, I decided to to go to the store, or I'm going to pick up that stone. Uh, or I can say that um, uh, I see the color red, and that's my experience of red, not yours. That uh, the self is the locus of subjectivity and the originator of agency. Now, part of what I think Garfield does is allied the language of uh, subjectivity and phenomenology, uh, with the language of self as soul, and that becomes, I think, a problem in, uh, in assuming that all u- all uses of the word self imply that kind of self that is a separate, immaterial, uncaused uh substance i don't think that's true when we talk about things like uh intentionality and subjectivity and agency i think that's uh a mistake in the language uh but well that's a bigger issue that we will um talk about uh in other chapters but i'd like to alert you to it in advance to pay attention to it as uh, we go forward so uh, that's uh, my introduction to this discussion group. I think we'll leave it there and we'll start with uh, chapter two in a little bit.